You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me this week are Jeff Branke and Anna Wells. We've been editors on Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News, uh, covering the industry for about 15 years now. Every week, we cover the five biggest stories in manufacturing and discuss the implications they might have on the industry going forward. All right, before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by giving the podcast a positive review or really just passing it along to a friend. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com. We're live this week, so if you saw me mess up earlier, that's there forever. But you can also ask questions as well. We also have the new Today in Manufacturing t-shirts. Uh, if you'd like to have one, just uh, shoot one of us an email and we'll get it out to you in the mail this week. Uh, Anna, how are you doing this week? Uh, great. I just, for those of you watching and listening, you can't tell how hot it is in here. I'm just going to tell you, it's so hot in here. It's very cozy. Very oh, cozy. So hot. Yeah. You know, uh, Jeff, when uh, we redid the office, I guess maybe they didn't run the heat to see that all the heat went in the studio. It all came into here. Yeah, it worked. That was the plan. Mm-hmm. Good job. Yeah. No, and it's good because it's freezing outside too. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, uh... Jeff, how are you doing this week? Good, man. Good to have you back. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, I clearly didn't lose a step. <laughs> You're consistent. You're consistent <laughs> with the intro. Yeah, very good. All right. Uh, let's roll into our first story this week. Government lab decrypts Tesla driving data. Tesla debuted autopilot about seven years ago. Since then, the advanced driver assist technology has made headlines for everything from drivers sleeping in the back seat to deadly crashes. It took U.S. regulators years to look into autopilot, while other nations are getting a bit more aggressive. A Tesla with autopilot engaged was involved in a rear-end collision in the Netherlands. Tesla's cars collect and store driving data, but the company encrypts it. The government wanted more transparent access, but they were denied. So they found a solution. The Netherlands Forensic Institute reverse-engineered and decrypted the company's driving data and found more, <clears throat> much more than they anticipated. They found details about autopilot use as well as vehicle speed, pedal position, steering and braking for more than a year in some cases. The agency shared the information, hoping it would help analysts better investigate crashes involving Teslas. Jeff, do you think it was a good idea that they shared the information or do you think that that's just going to make it easier for Tesla to have a stronger code? Um, <clears throat> potentially. I think that's going to happen anyway. I guess I didn't have too many issues with them saying, hey, we cracked the code, so to speak. Mm-hmm. To me, this is sort of a bigger issue. And it kind of creates what I think is a, is a real slippery slope in terms of how you're going after and getting some of this data that's sort of a combination of personal for the driver, as well as proprietary for Tesla. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, this really goes back to telematics, which first started being a thing probably the mid-90s with vehicles. The concept there was for the vehicle to be able to send information to wherever you got your vehicle fixed. Mm-hmm. So basically, those providers could have the parts available. They could say, hey, look, we know David's vehicle is coming up for an oil change. Let's make sure we have everything. The brakes have X amount of miles. The engine's making a funny noise, that type of thing. It was sort of guised under improving um, operator safety, but the reality is it was maintenance dollars. That's really what it was about at that point, especially getting people to go more to the dealership because at that point there was still a very, very strong independent dealer network Mm -hmm. that people could go to to get their cars fixed. Mm -hmm. So that's where it started. And from there, it also went on to the insurance companies, then having little plug-in devices, kind of track how fast you were going and if you were being a safe driver and using that potentially for discounts and other things, Progressive, a bunch of other insurance companies obviously still have that going strong. Now we've gotten to a different age where we have, what, the equivalent of, of a dozen computers essentially under the hood of your vehicle, lots of sensors collecting all of this information. Now, for the vehicles that we drive, non-Teslas, mm-hmm. <clears throat> they can do that. Yeah. There's a black box essentially in your car. They can track all this information if they want to. But here in the U.S., it's a proprietary thing. You have to sign it over mm-hmm. to say if you want to share that information with an insurance company or whomever. So for the Netherlands and this government agency or this basically this police police law enforcement agency to go in and work around that code, mm-hmm. work around the individual who owns the vehicle and getting that information, I have a lot of trouble there. Mm-hmm. I really, I just, I can't get on board with that because even though their motives may be sincere in going after and trying to make things as safe as possible and also working with Tesla who is 
big surprise. Hey, I don't know if you noticed, but they didn't have a response. Yeah, mm. yeah They did yeah. not respond to inquiries about this story. Odd. Big surprise. Yeah. I can understand that frustration there, but I still struggle with the fact that this is a, there's a lot of personal data and a lot of other things that are at stake here, and they're working around the protocols that are in place to get that information. I, I didn't like that, especially when we're basically talking about a traffic accident. Mm-hmm. I think it is different when there is, you know, we've, we've, had, we've run some of these stories with autopilot where there was people were killed. Mm-hmm. And in those instances where you're looking at potential criminal charges and loss of life, then I can see maybe navigating this a little bit differently. In this instance, I feel like they went too far. But isn't this them getting out in front of it by maybe accessing this information? Maybe they help prevent the next accident where somebody dies. Whereas if Tesla was maybe a little more transparent with the information, they wouldn't have to do so. Okay, but that's autopilot. Mm-hmm. That's not all of this other stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, that's what I mean. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for more information in autopilot, and they were kind of stunned as to how much information was actually in there. Okay, but do you feel comfortable with that agency having all that information about your driving habits? Honestly, honestly, I don't care. But I mean, I, what sort of nefarious thing are they going to do with but that? But it's it's going to go beyond that because in a lot of these cases, and they didn't get into this specifically here, they were just looking at the sort of the mechanical data, I guess you could say. Yeah. But if there's an infotainment system in there that's tracking your preferences and that's connected to your smartphone, there's also a way to get a lot of information there about you personally that's going to be stored basically through the same network. I think this just creates a real slippery slope in terms of where does it stop? Yeah. What's okay for them to look at? What's not okay for them to look at? Mm-hmm. I don't think that's up to this agency to determine that. Jeff, I, but just because you don't want them to know that you're listening to the Twilight soundtrack when you're driving doesn't mean Used to. Used to. Used to. Is Twilight soundtrack pretty good? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I get like I get it. This is a, a hack, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. So I can see like people's discomfort a bit with that. Um, where's the threshold in terms of like when this is appropriate? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you raised some good points, but also I thought it was interesting to just see like what, what a government could and would do when it comes to like dealing with a company that like won't cooperate with them mm-hmm. because Tesla's doing the same thing in the U S. Um, and we've had a very different response as you kind of alluded to. Um, it's been a very slow process and, um, you know, we're not allowing this industry to police itself. Right. Last, last mm-hmm. I checked. So, um, I don't know. It just seems like the Netherlands may be doing something that the, the U.S. has not had the guts to do yet. The NTSB had recently went on record, like in an interview on NBC or something, and said that the self-driving program that Tesla had rolled out was misleading. Like she used the word misleading. Mm-hmm. And they also sent a letter to Elon Musk recently um, about the company's failure to respond to recommendations issued by NTSB four years ago. Um, to limit the system's functionality that Tesla never responded to. It's been four years. I mean, like, how long are we going to let Elon Musk kind of run wild with the system? I mean, I know this is a different country. This is not something that we're doing. Mm-hmm. But I kind of, when I saw it, I was kind of like, okay, well, if he's not going to do anything, I mean, and he's not responsive, he's very opaque mm-hmm. with how this is operating. We've seen a ton of problems with it. I think a lot of people are very uncomfortable with how the system is being used on public roads when it's not perfected and it's got a lot of problems that he's admitted that it's got a lot of problems. I mean, well, and Jeff, a lot of times when we're talking about Tesla autopilot, you actually kind of side with the regulators that there needs to be more transparency, that they need to, that Tesla needs to do more in making a safer product. I mean, I think this is an instance of, you know, uh, data collection is good and necessary for the evolution of this product. And if Tesla and Musk are going to drag their feet Maybe this is something to spur a little bit of action that makes the world okay, safer. But, but I think we're looking at this from two different perspectives. You guys are looking at it from a Tesla perspective, and I agree there. Yeah. An automotive manufacturer does be more transparent. There shouldn't be anything that they need to hide outside of proprietary production specs or, or technologies, okay? Mm-hmm. I understand from a safety perspective they do need to be more transparent. I'd agree with that 100%. But we start getting into individual data. Mm-hmm. This is personal data on how this individual functions within their vehicle. That's where I have a problem. And that's where I don't know where are these folks going to start and stop. Are they just going to say, okay, look, we're not going to look at anything else. All we're looking is this set of of data that would happen at this particular time. Because if they are, they're better than 99.9% of all other human beings on this planet. Mm -hmm. Okay, nobody does that. They're going to continue to dig deeper and look at more things to see what else they can find. That's their job. Yeah. And I don't feel comfortable with that. 
I get. I mean, like you know, the same argument was being made at the time when um, when Apple was being asked to like crack into the phone of that uh, person that was like wanted and on a manhunt in California and trying yeah. to find him, and they refused to do so. And um, the slippery slope argument again. And I get that. Um, I just feel like there's got to be a middle ground between like. We're not exactly breathing down Tesla's neck right now, getting mm-hmm. them to comply with what they need to do to make sure that this product is safe. So where can we meet in the middle on this that makes sense to, like, I think maybe pursue them in a more aggressive way mm-hmm. without, yeah. you know, taking advantage of people's personal data? And they did kind of, you know, respond to your point where they said, quote, they were going to use the information to objectively investigate. <laughs> That's it. That's all that's being done, Jeff. <laughs> that's, it. that's it. I mean, how could that possibly go sideways? Put that but under I mean, your pillow. But I mean, like, you have... <laughs> under my pillow. Yeah. Is this... Already? So you can sleep So well I can sleep at night. Sleep on it? Oh, okay. <laughs> that's all I meant. I have not heard that one. Um, I mean, but do you have, like, a Amazon Echo device or a Google device or even a smartphone? Because, I mean, if you're worried about people with your... But I know what's going on there. Yeah. Okay, I know that's what's happening. You know what's yeah. going on I with your that. smartphone? And you're you're fine with them I having so. <laughs> you're fine with them having every personality profile that they possibly could on you, but you're worried about the Netherlands knowing where you let, prefer your pedal position? Okay, do you want your vehicle being tracked all the time? I mean, I feel like it already is. Uh no, I don't want it tracked all the time, but I don't think that's not what they were doing here. They weren't tracking it. But David, that's my point. Yeah. They can. Yeah. Once they get in once they get in this deep they can do whatever they want. If, yeah. they can, if they can get in there and see how your op- vehicle is operating down to the details of your pedal position, yeah. they can find out everything else. And what's going to stop somebody from coming along and taking that the next step and saying, I'm going to retroactively give you a speeding ticket because you were going 36 and a 25 while you were running late for daycare drop-off. Oh, there's that slippery slope. Yep, okay. You're getting slipping right down Yeah, it. this slope is definitely slippery. I've seen the error of my ways. <laughs> We're all going down for going 30 and a 25. Um, You've never gone 30 and a 25. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> all right. While we're confessing to other sins. All right. <laughs> our next story this week is another banger. The world is running out of the color blue. <laughs> Can you believe it? Paint company Asco Noble is running out of the ingredients to make blue paint, and the color tint has become Quote, extremely difficult to get. The CEO says there's no reason for it. The company's CEO says the capacity for making raw materials never changed. Yet his company is now expecting cost increases and shortages into 2022. Besides blue, shortages include an additive needed to make waterproof formulas and even the tin plates for paint cans. Sherwin-Williams has also voiced concerns over shortages. Part of the problem can be attributed to the deep freeze in Texas earlier this year, which hurt petroleum products, a key paint ingredient. Anna, have you were you planning on painting anything blue in your house? Not anymore. It's Just, over. Yep. I'm going with a chartreuse. Is that green? I don't You're yeah, asking the wrong guy. Yeah. I have no idea. I don't I won't <laughs> Light blue? I won't be, is yeah. the answer. Mm-hmm. Um I thought it was interesting the 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 story was very interesting. It is green. It yeah. is green. Yeah. Uh, the story was interesting and it, it focused a lot on like material chain um, issues, which is important, I think. But um, I think something that the CEO of Asco Nobel didn't really acknowledge when he was talking about like there's no reason for this was um, what's actually happening from a procurement standpoint. You know, we talked a lot about panic buying from a consumer side, um, everything from toilet paper, grocery items, diapers, whatever the the empty store shelves, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that businesses are doing this too. And if you look at the history of inventory management and manufacturing, it's been typical, like looking backwards to have like an enormous amount of extra inventory on your shelves because people, I wouldn't call it panic buying, but like almost like an insurance policy, Mm -hmm. people don't want to run out. It's always been like a very um, big cost center for manufacturers to have all this inventory MRO stuff just sitting on their shelves because it either gets stolen, it gets lost, um, it expires. Uh, So, you know, inventory waste has long been a a big problem. And in the last, I don't know, five to 10 years, there's really been a lot of focus on uh, that 
side of the business as a cost center and trying to manage those costs, maybe having your supplier hold on to that inventory and get it more on a just-in-time basis. It seems like companies got burned by that during oh, yeah. the pandemic yeah. because yeah. of all this supply chain stuff. So I think um, maybe manufacturers are, are going backwards like quite a bit here. When you look at some of the, the purchases that are being made and they're probably buying a little bit excess um, and it's really having these big ripple impacts down the supply chain. So, I mean, there's many reasons not to do it. Um, you know, one, obviously, you're losing money just holding that stuff. Mm -hmm. Two, you might never get to use it. So it could actually be like lost money. Mm -hmm. But then three, you know, look at these companies, these paint companies who they're like, we don't understand why this is happening to our business. Well, one of the reasons outside of that deep freeze, outside of the the pigment stuff and, you know, those shortages, but, you know, they just people are overbuying, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah. I think that's a big side of it too. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, how about yourself? Remodeling plans and their impact on the paint shortage. <laughs> Mine should have a pretty minimal effect, but okay. we did actually repaint my youngest daughter's room, a shade of blue about two years ago. And I kept the paint. Mm -hmm. Actually went like through all that. Black market. Yeah. So yeah, I do have a gallon yeah. of Sherman Williams blue paint. If somebody's uh, mm -hmm. interested, you got to yeah. get that on the gray market. Wonder what that'd be worth now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the, like this color, <laughs> I was just kind of curious. I wasn't sure where to go with this. It is kind of interesting, first of all, that it's almost – to have a story that's not about a pandemic-related supply chain issue is right. a little refreshing almost. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word, right. but it brings a little bit of normalcy to it. I guess blue has become a super popular color for exteriors. Yeah, People are painting hmm. their homes some variation of blue. So mm -hmm. it's probably using a lot of mixtures and, and stuff like that. And I guess what that got me thinking a little bit about is – Kind of connecting the dots, we just had our house painted about two years ago. And if that individual's paint costs go up, obviously mm -hmm. he's got to charge more for that. The whole overall cost of using a professional then increases as well. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. I mean, could these types of supply chain issues then have an effect on some of the trades? Oh, yeah. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, these guys, Axel Nobel, I mean, they've got, if they want to buy 10, I would think in a typical situation, they've got 10 people lined up to sell them containers for their paint. And now they're having trouble just even finding that. Mm -hmm. Right. So when we look at plumbers, HVAC folks, electricians, if their raw materials are going up that much in price and they have to charge more, mm -hmm. folks are seeing these price increases. What's that going to do to those industries, you wonder? It hasn't broken yet because people are still, the pandemic just set off a fire of people yeah. uh, remodeling their homes. And I mean, we recently had somebody come in to give us a quote, and it was laughable. It was the quote where it was just like, all right, if they agree to this price, we have to do it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, it's, it's a big issue. So that kind of... Uh, we haven't found the straw to break the camel's back there yet, but I feel like it is quickly approaching, particularly between well, and materials and labor. It's kind of a shame because finally you feel like these folks are getting paid what they have deserved to they deserve to get paid, and they were underpaid for decades. Yeah. Now it's finally caught up, and now it could be potentially supply chain issues and raw material issues. Yeah. That kind of hinder their different their their business and their ability to grow. Right. Just a good old fashioned ecological disaster to cause this one. Yeah. No pandemic. <laughs> um, the one thing that uh, <clears throat> the one thing when I was looking this up is I found articles with the headline, here's where to buy it before it sells out. When you read articles that say that, whatever the item, don't buy it. Mm -hmm. Do not buy it. Like, and especially don't click those links because they're getting paid on that one. Is it like when, when like CNBC or some of those other financial uh, networks have somebody from the stock market be like, you know, I would uh, I'd sell. Mm -hmm. All uh, like McDonald's, Ford, and um, GE. Def, just get rid of them. They're going to tank. Yeah. Because he has no interest in buying them up. Right? Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. No, I was just uh, – and I also – digging into this a little bit because I was also working on a companion piece about the whitest white paint, which I hope we get to cover sometime. <laughs> um, I became acquainted with American Painting Contractor, also known as PaintMag.com. Yeah. My new favorite place on the website, other than our websites, of course. Uh, paint isn't the only problem that's causing this shortage. Uh, there's an, an incredible shortage of painters, if you guys could believe it, uh, that there's a, <laughs> someone out there looking for labor. But uh, so There's not a shortage of my husband. <laughs> oh, sorry, Chris. That you was, do all of our painting is what I meant. When I saw this story, the first thing I thought was, good, I hate painting. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. I totally agree. Especially ceilings. Oh, oh man. Yeah. Paint oh, one ceiling and that is it. I am so hiring in a heartbeat. So you're just like, we can't paint because there's, there's no a shortage. Paint. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we don't want to get gouged. 
don't look. Yeah, no. there's no still no paint. But we do have a commercial painter in the family, and he has had tremendous trouble staffing mm. to the point where uh, he just got to the point where he just ran with smaller crews this year. Yeah. And, I mean, I haven't been able to talk to him yet about the uh, the paint shortage, but, I mean, he was already out of people to do the painting. Now he's out of the products. I feel like that's going to get real tight. Yeah. Um. The other thing uh, I believe that we were talking about was uh, problems with importing goods. So one thing in particular is getting titanium dioxide from China. Mm -hmm. Had no idea what that did. But it's apparently called the most important white pigment in the coatings industry because it helps make paint whiter, brighter, and more opaque. So not only can we not color blue, we can't really color anything that needs white, which is every (laughs) color, can't paint. Can't make anything lighter. No, no. uh, It just seems like a uh, a really interesting problem. But Anna, did you find comfort in that this was not a pandemic-related supply chain problem and that just simple old... I mean, like I said, though, I I feel like there's no such thing as a not a pandemic-related supply chain problem. I mean, people overbuying is a pandemic-related supply chain problem, in my opinion. I mean, the fact that they can't get this titanium oxide from China is a pandemic-related supply chain problem. Like, so... You know, I know that, like we said, it goes back to some of these other issues, but I don't think that it's it's uh, insulated 100 percent from from that at all. Okay, All right. So, I mean, at the end of it, we just figured out that none of us are painting this next quarter. Cool. Yeah. 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 Very good. Very good. No one go. No one get out and paint. Terrible time. All right. Our next most popular story this week. Build this toll. Swedish startup Jetson Aero is making an electric eVTOL, or vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, called the Jetson One. It's an ultraviolet craft, or an ultraviolet, it's an ultralight craft, so you don't need a pilot license to fly it. And users assemble it themselves as it comes about 50% complete. The One is a simple quadcopter for a single occupant. The all-aluminum airframe weighs 190 pounds and cannot be flown by a pilot who weighs more than 210 pounds. Flight controls are a three-axis joystick and throttle lever. Flight time is 20 minutes with a 187-pound pilot and the top speed, 63 miles per hour. It costs $92,000, but Anna, the 2022 model, is already sold out. Mm, Bummer. No numbers on how many they sold, Mm -hmm. but they're gone. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Well, this won't surprise you guys at all, but I hate this concept. Um, no. I know. What? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, I am not their target market, believe it or not, with this product. Yeah. No, I, I hate it because um, some interesting data came out this week that I think illustrates just how uh, the U.S. population is becoming more and more reckless. Uh, the NHTSA just announced that um, the first half of 2021 is the worst uh, for road safety, we've had it since 1975. Um, like road deaths increased 18, percent which is the you know that's I'm, this is so if if compared to 1975 when people weren't really even wearing seatbelts, mm-hmm. like that makes this so much more alarming to me. The fact that like we have all these safety features within our vehicles and people are still dying. Yeah. Um, they looked at behavior in their research report and determined that people are speeding more and they're also not wearing their seatbelts. Um, really? And, yep. And this is from like in comparison to pre pandemic, which one of those are you shocked by the seatbelt? Why go backwards on that one? Yeah. You know, I, like, I mean, I figured it was distracted driving. Well, I mean, it's understandable if you have a car that doesn't have seatbelts in it, but I figured, you know, of all things we were past, well, you would think, right? But like, so I mean, they're they're sort of ascribing this this trend to the past two years um, mm-hmm. as people are becoming more reckless. Uh, I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know if it's because we all stared death in the face with this pandemic, and people are just like, yeah, yeah, what's it the-? matter? But um, I don't think we've earned the right to access more potentially dangerous technology, um, especially something where no pilot's license is required. It's sort of half DIY. Yeah. Um. You know, I think it's going to attract a certain type of buyer, maybe somebody that's, I don't know, has a higher appetite for risk than I do, clearly. Um, I think it's going to be problematic. I'm not, like, trying to come nanny state on this or whatever, but I think we do have to be concerned about the innocent people that could be collateral damage. I mean, this thing only weighs 250 pounds, but that's, Mm -hmm. like, hurtling towards you from the sky. That could do some damage. I mean... 
I just, I don't know. I just don't think I, you don't get a, a like a redo if you like do it wrong and if you don't know how to do it. Right. That's and no the, one's testing you. That's how life works. No redo. No redo. <laughs> yeah. It, I, I, I don't know. I'm just not into it. Yeah. No. As a person that's riskier, I definitely like this thing. Um, you are in the definite minority on this panel. This is a horrible idea. No, I mean, come on. I just started <clears throat> saving for it now. By the time I have enough to buy it, we should be back down to winter or get that winter weight off. Um, and I'll be able to fly it. Uh, you don't like it as an idea? This is terrible. Good. First of all, your tagline should not be, what is it? Make everyone a pilot. Oh, yeah. Let's that not is, that make is everyone a pilot. Horrible. Yeah. yeah. No, everyone what? should not be a pilot. No. This is obvious. Just by watching people navigate a car, mm-hmm. okay? Don't put them in the air. Yeah. Have you gone 60 miles an hour in a snowmobile, a jet oh, ski, yeah. a boat, like an any of these things that is not in, have like an enclosed frame? Yeah. That is incredibly fast. Yeah. And if you've got 250 pounds of lightweight aluminum as the only thing that's protecting you when mm-hmm. you fall out of the sky, mm-hmm. bad things are going to happen. Especially, especially when you have to finish putting it together. That's... In what world does it make sense to yeah. put together the thing you're going to be flying in? Yeah, I mean, how does that make sense? How is that a good idea? I mean, that makes you I'm got the, nothing. One, no, 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 one hundred percent. That's where I agree with you. Is that the fact that this is like a kit car? Like, the it's whole, not a kit car. No, like, uh, but the fact that you can build your own car and drive it, I already find that to be too risky. So, building your but own, you need a license to drive a car, and yeah. you need a license. You need to get that vehicle licensed to be on the road. Yeah, I this mean, is like wild west here stuff here. Yeah. Oh, oh, where's the button? Me. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I don't think it's that dangerous. Okay, I mean, sixty what? people a year die on these ultra lightweight aircraft. 60? 60. That's lower than I thought. <laughs> how, I mean, many, how many exist? Yeah, no. Uh, 70? <laughs> I mean, I mean, there are way worse commercials or products that have been commercialized. And I mean, if we could justify a gun that's sold 50% complete and you can try like uh, uh, making your own barrel for it, like this is no. I didn't justify that. Or Who did? People justify that. How they, That's how they sell. You know, they get around some gun laws. Anyway, um, I don't think it's that devious. First of all, do you know how many people had to die to make Orbit City a reality? City and the Jetsons, man. I mean, it's a beautiful place now, but I mean, they had casually dropped Orbit City. We were like, (laughs) what? Yeah, no, they I mean, you got to you got to, you know, you want to make an omelet? You got to you got to crack some eggs. So if we're going to make realize what is urban air mobility, urban air mobility, this is just the next step. Um, this thing can only go 20 feet in the air. Yeah, I know. This is just for, you know, running to the grocery store. You know, I'm just going to pop into this thing, get over to pick and save, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. maybe get a, mm-hmm. ch- maybe get a kid on my lap. Cause I'm sure, you know, the next step, horrible. the next step to avoid your life insurance. The one policy. thing that I would say too, I think from looking at their site, they only sold like a dozen of these. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think that was their capacity was 12. Yeah. So thankfully there's only... 12 people putting their life in danger, I guess. But for $92,000. So urban air mobility and flying cars will be a reality at some point. Is this just not safe enough? Is it too soon? What do you it, It's not too it's definitely not safe enough. Yeah. Okay, you need I mean there's no way around that. There's yeah. no I mean the even the the um the video, the B-roll, like they have on their site, it looks like somebody who got really excited about Star Wars, watching Luke Skywalker and his speeder go across the desert like of Tantooine. It does That's what like it looks speeder. like. No, so it is safe. It It's able to fly on only three rotors. So if one goes out, not in trouble oh, yet. Here's another thing that kind of caught my eye. Anytime they make a point of saying repeatedly on the website, our first focus is safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a red flag. Yeah. Mm, no, Jeff's it has it. triple layers of redundancy. That sounds safe to me. That sounds like a paper toweling commercial. Hand freeze, hands free hover, you know? Oh, hands hands free hover? Wait. You don't have to flap your arms? What does that mean? Does it really only fly 20 feet above ground? That's what it's recommended. Then why does it have a parachute? You have to go higher than that in order for the parachute to deploy. Yeah, but that's, I just, okay. Yeah, a lot of things aren't adding up here. Yeah, you're going to hit some power lines. uh, David. So we got a comment from a viewer uh, for Anna and Jeff, what developments do you need to see from the EV toll 
to make it more comfortable, to make you more comfortable with the idea. Anna's answer is nothing. No developments no. at this time. Thank you. Number one, don't let me put it together. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, you need to be a licensed pilot. Okay, good. let's start there. I think that's just a good that's just a good step for all aircraft. I get that, you know, this is the ultralight aircraft is a kind of an easy way around getting a pilot's license, but if I'm going to fly, I'm going to want to be, you know, qualified. Yeah, but but you are not everyone who's buying this vehicle. Like No, no. I used to work with a guy that's crashed like three planes. I know that there are some reckless people out there. Yeah. But I mean, how many times have you crashed like an RC plane or like a remote control plane? They're just, I mean, I don't trust myself with I'm a drone. I'm not in the remote control plane. No, but I'm, yeah, no, but I'm just saying, oh, I, no, I'm saying that I've crashed quadcopters before <laughs> and that's why I wouldn't trust myself unless I had training on this quadcopter. Okay. Which I would make sure to have plenty of training. Uh, we'll get them together. We'll you get them together. Yeah. You would not. You would be the guy. Be able to, you know. So you put it together in their garage. You'd be like, that looks awesome. Can I go? Yeah. yeah. Just I'm just going to pop up, take it for a quick ride. It's only a five-gallon tank. Can't get far. Right. You can get up. Yeah. You yeah. can't get far. It's Like you said, it's aluminum. Probably a good roll cage. I'll have a helmet. I won't wear a helmet. Don't do it, David. Yeah. All right. Agree to disagree, guys. <laughs> Our next most popular story this week, factories linked to billionaires Ponzi scheme. One of Ukraine's richest men is using vacant Midwestern factories to hide money from the government. Industrial banking and media tycoon Iher Kolomiski allegedly used factories to squirrel away millions from a Ponzi scheme in the U.S. A network of firms purchased more than a dozen properties and factories around the nation, including a doomed Motorola factory in Illinois. Local officials made the deals without asking many questions. The factories and mills continue to sit idle. Kalamiskai faces ongoing corruption probes and has denied wrongdoing. Anna, do you believe his denial? I don't really care, honestly, at this point, because the, the results of this have been kind of, I don't know, there's just been really some sad details surrounding this, especially, so I read the political report when it first published, mm -hmm. and it focuses a bit on the Motorola plant that was purchased by his conglomerate um, in Harvard, Illinois. Right. And um, it was a big factory project. There was like a couple of years of boom on this, and then the bottom fell out of their market and they closed down. So it was really difficult for that community, which is like a town of 10,000 residents in Illinois. It's kind of like a, a small town um, just to lose those jobs. And then I think they were hoping and hoping and hoping someone would buy that plant. So when it was purchased, um, you know, obviously it continued to sit vacant. I think they owned it for like five years. Mm. And um, all it did during that time was just fall into further disrepair. It's full of mold apparently now. Um, they, the city of Harvard did not have the kind of budget to like absorb the hundreds of thousands of dollars in property taxes that were going unpaid by the owners of this building. Mm -hmm. um, and so now the town is basically saying that the building's not just valueless. It's, it's like a catastrophe for the town because they have to demolish it. And um, what they said in Politico, they quoted a, a city official who said the net cost for that after salvage is probably three to five times the city's annual budget. Oh, man. Yeah. So, well, like, you know, the city is, is you know, essentially to be bankrupted by this if they proceed mm -hmm. with trying to tear this factory down, which is a blight, an eyesore at best. I mean, it's dangerous mm -hmm. probably for people, you know, who knows what's going on and, in there. So, And they lost all of that time potentially. To try to make it to different. repurpose yeah, it at yeah. some point, and now it's like a lost cause. You can't use that building anymore. Yeah, well, it was. It's a 1.5 million square foot facility mm -hmm. that spans 320 acres. Yeah, and cost 100 million dollars. It's just, it's incredible. I found it incredible that uh, he bought he bought it for 16.75 million dollars, mm -hmm. and of, he does this all the time. It sounds like this is a reoccurring where his conglomerate buys up these factories or plants, promises uh, new jobs, revitalization. And Jeff, it just doesn't seem like it ever pans out. 
It's it's a super sad story. Um, I actually ran into another great article um, from the Pittsburgh um, Post Gazette's website by Michael Sala called "Dirty Dollars," mm-hmm. and it goes into this in greater detail. And what he focused on really in his report was Warren Steel, which has a couple of different facilities in northern Ohio, mm-hmm. and that were purchased. That basically had a couple of really bad safety incidents, bad fires, explosions, things like that. That went on in these steel factories, and they were closing down. They weren't going anywhere. This guy comes in and buys them. So this community all of a sudden has the hope of, oh, man, there's going to be an infusion of dollars, get these mills back up and running. Mm-hmm. And eventually they're closed down. People lose jobs. All this excitement and energy that was there surrounding these industries, which are struggling to begin with, and it's it's just false hope, and it's just crushing mm-hmm. I mean, to these communities, like Anna just said. And then there's the infrastructure costs and lost tax dollars and everything else. I think at first my thought was, boy, why didn't these municipalities dig more deeply into mm-hmm. these buyers. But when you're looking at shell corporations, this mm-hmm. was coming from the Ukraine to someplace else in the EU down to, I think it was the, the Caribbean or like the Bahamas or something like that, and then funneled through all these different shell companies. How in the world yeah. are you going to track that? It takes mm-hmm. special investigators from government law enforcement just mm-hmm. to figure it out. And it took them, you know, 10, 12 years. Well, and it took, well, actually, I mean, it took, it. a lot of that came out in the Pandora Papers, the 12 million documents that came out about how these billionaires are using shell companies, trusts, real estate, and other financial tools to stash enormous amounts of money. But to your point, we've seen this happen when there there was no there was uh, nothing underneath the surface with yeah. Foxconn, where it was you are just promised with a little bit of promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just say jobs, yeah. revitalization. Yeah. You know, uh, we're bringing bringing business back to the state. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think people need to look beyond that at all. I think people just hear that it's a it's a win for my administration. Yeah, a lot of it is political. You're right, but a lot of it is also the community. And with Foxconn, it was different. I mean, there was some some backlash there. Not everybody was totally on board with that. Mm-hmm. But in these instances, you also had the community fully behind oh, yeah. mm-hmm. the potential that these guys promised, or this individual and his shell companies and everything else. I mean, this is. This would be a great miniseries or, or like yeah. limited story. I mean, it's just an incredible story when you dig into how complex this was. Yeah. Essentially, and I was trying to understand all this money laundering and everything else. I guess what it basically came down to is they were shedding up, setting up these companies that were basically making loans to these other companies. And that's oh, okay. just how they kept the money filtering through all these different places with whatever he ended up doing. Uh, it was like one and a half billions of do- billion dollars or something like that. Yes. Yeah, he also owns steel factories in West Virginia and Kentucky and Ohio, production plants in Michigan and New York and Indiana. So why we talk about Harvard, Illinois, This is these are a lot of people that are mm-hmm. deeply impacted by this one person. And it seems to be not limited to uh, Mr. Columbus guy here. Yeah. It's also, um, I also find it um, very unfortunate that he kind of... I mean, he kind of laughs in the face of everybody that's kind of coming after him about mm-hmm. this. Uh, just no regard for the people that live there. Also, the one question I had, so if these properties are vacant, like the one in Harvard in particular, is the only thing that they lost the ability to sort of either try and keep it up or find somebody that would use it? Because, I mean, they still did get $16.75 million for the facility. Mm-hmm. In this instance, I mean, it's, it's a combination of things, right? It was the fact that they were promised that these folks were going to come in here and actually do something with it and creating all these jobs, creating a tax base, paying property taxes, which they never did. Yeah. So it's that loss. It's the loss that they couldn't find a viable customer for it as well. But yeah. then, and as Anna mentioned, with that place in Harvard, Illinois, they have to tear it down, essentially. Yeah. I think they did. Did they actually sell that building? But I, I think it's sort of... It was sold again. It was again. pennies on the dollar, yeah. essentially, mm-hmm. for what right. they ended up getting for it. Well, and we don't know where who got the money when they... You know, maybe oh, Motorola true. was holding that asset. We don't know. Yeah, so. that's true. Okay. All right. Our most popular story this week. 16... It's actually 17 killed in Russian gunpowder factory blast. A fire and subsequent explosion at a Russian ammunition disposal plant in Russia... Killed the, the, the entire shift. The blast killed 17 and was caused by an unspecified failure during the production process. Officials think the fire started in a gunpowder workshop. A criminal investigation has been opened. Local authorities say the blast is another example of a need to improve safety standards in, quote, hazardous industries. And Anna, yes, it is another reminder of the need to improve safety standards. Yeah, um, you know, 
we look at these types of incidents and we think, well, these happen in places in the globe that have fewer regulations like Russia, India, China. Mm-hmm. Um, but this stuff still happens here, I think, in large part due to negligence. I mean, we covered this story in one of our first ever podcasts um, back in February, if you guys recall, about a company in New Hampshire called Black Meg. Mm -hmm. And that former owner, a man named Craig Sanborn, was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison um, after two workers died on his watch, basically because he um, didn't train people adequately. He didn't implement even the most basic of safety protocols and he was convicted of manslaughter in the end he tried to get out of prison this year Mm -hmm. and that was denied denied, yeah Yeah, but um you know it, it, it can happen here it can happen anywhere um that said i think this is sort of a dying industry in the u.s um I saw that hodgdon powder company i think that is that how you say it i'm not a gun person but um they are the largest supplier of smokeless black powder and black powder substitute propellants. Um, they announced this month that they are winding down their Camp Minden, Louisiana black powder plant, which is eliminating the only domestic source of black powder in the United States. Mm. So that's by the end of the year shutting down. Um, do you guys think that from a safety point of view, this is good? Or do you would you rather see a domestic supply chain for this product? Because it really is about kind of ceasing to exist here. I don't know what you need black powder for, especially. I mean, in my understanding, the smokeless powder that's used in the, the weapons that I, mm-hmm. you know, for my twenty two, my shotgun, stuff like that, I don't need black powder. So I don't exactly know what all the, do- the other domestic applications would be. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's really necessary. Mm-hmm. I know it's needed for bigger stuff, okay? When you have artillery shells, you do need black powder. So, I mean, there still needs to be a supply chain for that for military applications. So if this was purely a domestic-focused um, product manufacturing plant. I don't know what the need is for it. To mm-hmm. be very honest, I know sure. there's some folks that still like to do some muzzle loading, uh, some muzzle hunting, and stuff like that. Again, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so I, the thing that's really kind of ironic, or I don't know, interesting to me is when you look at the best ways to dispose of black powder, which is the stuff that's the problem here, or gunpowder overall. It's water. Mm. You you apply water to this powder, and it's it's basically done it's Mm -hmm. over and stuff so when we see about these explosions and these fires based on munitions disposal which is what this facility was again i'm not an expert on this process and i'm sure it's much more complicated than just putting in the sink Mm -hmm. yeah but boy when you saw the clip of this explosion on youtube yeah it is it's out of a movie i mean it is it blew the roof off it's crazy i mean and you got this huge brick building and this huge fireball going up behind it it is it's incredible and it's tragic, mm-hmm. obviously. Oh yeah, it's. I mean, like I said, it wiped out the entire shift. Um, and Anna, to your point, I don't think. I think that when we no longer have a domestic supply chain, that there should be more responsibility as to where they're going to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's how facilities like this. We've seen facilities overseas in the textile industry. Um, there's just. There's no oversight locally or with their uh, with governments, and so maybe there is a little bit where companies can be a little bit more um, push the agenda in terms of improving safety in some of these places. I know that they don't have to, but maybe you know with some of the uh, PR problems that some of these companies have had, particularly you know in the fashion industry, mm-hmm, um, sure. that has actually helped create a bit of change. And maybe that's something that we can help make other facilities safer? I don't know. Potentially, yeah. I know that that's a little bit too much optimism for this <laughs> podcast. Well, not, not not necessarily for the U.S. industrial sector, but for this one, it's it's interesting because this is a PGUP elastic factory. That's the name of the company or that was operating this facility. Yeah, It's a Rostec company. Oh, that's okay. a Russian tech conglomerate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Putin started this a decade ago. So it does make you a little more suspicious as far as what was actually going on there. Yeah. And I was surprised at the transparency around the story in terms of the victims and what was actually going on there. And there was actually a lot of tough, quote unquote, talk about regulations and violations that were happening here. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, though, <clears throat> is when I was looking at a, a website, France24.com, they're a news agency that was reporting on this and was closer to it than a lot of the U.S. agencies were. They've talked to a lot of the local news media, and they said this facility had been bankrupt since like 2015. What? So that they felt it was, it was thought that basically Rostec was bringing in basically anybody who needed to do munitions work into this facility mm-hmm. oh. to do it, which means they probably weren't being real safe. They yeah. probably weren't, 
it was probably something that Rostec could make a fair amount of money on without yeah. sort of circumventing the regulations and everything else. So they can talk hmm. about, we, yeah, there are these violations, they were doing it wrong. At the end of the day, that's a Russian government agency talking about a government-owned company. Yeah. So what's going to change there? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it made me think of the two facilities in the U.S. that are used to destroy uh, old chemical weapons. The Bluegrass Chemical Agent Destruction Pilot Plant, Pilot Plant in Kentucky and the Pueblo Chemical Agent Destruction Plant in Colorado. And the reason it made me think of that is because we've done a couple of stories on these, and these are extremely automated plants that mm-hmm. destroy incredibly powerful weapons, uh, you know, mustard agent weapons that date back to the 40s that were used in rockets and project other projectiles. And uh, how it can be done right in terms of decommissioning these weapons. So may, there's got to be a better way regardless. Yeah. And we certainly know that they weren't doing it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. Let's move on to in case you missed it this week. Uh, Anna, let's start with you. Uh, and in case you missed it, where we try and cover these stories that, you know, maybe weren't as popular as the other stories this week. Um, what did you think people missed? Well, this week we covered my favorite um government pandemic relief fund fraud story yet, which is saying a lot because we've covered a lot of them. Yeah. (laughs) Um, A Georgia man has been accused of fraudulently obtaining $85,000 in small business administration pandemic relief funds for an unnamed business that he apparently inflated the size of. And, um, and he was somehow misrepresented his business. Anyway, bad enough on its own. But then it was revealed that he spent a solid two thirds of his eighty five thousand dollars on a single Pokemon card. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming it was rare. So yeah, it was you probably, hope so. Yeah. It just wasn't a bad deal. It's yeah. probably it super cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I just have to say that I would respect it more if it were literally anything else. What? Anything else? Like if if I were on that jury, I would be impartial. If it were like a Mercedes or something, or this is his Mercedes. Like a European river cruise? This something. Is, I like just something yeah. else. Anything Do you else. know how much street cred he now has in the Pokemon underbelly? Yeah, underworld? in the like 12 to 14 year old. Um, you would be surprised. No, yeah. I know. I know that um, it's an. You're thinking of 12 to 14 year olds, but in context, all those 12 to 14 year olds are like 30 and 40 year olds now. Yeah, Pokemon's huge. Yeah, yeah, I know that it's huge. I just, uh, let's get back to how dumb this is. $58,000 <laughs> on a card. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, your point of your favorite pandemic-related fraud, mm-hmm. I don't know about that one. My favorite is definitely the escort, yep. the escort who got busted for fraud and then applied it for and received more fraudulent funds for another fake business while she was already being prosecuted. Now that... Is an entrepreneur. I know. We talked um, about this last week, and uh, like there were like literally zero safeguards in this system. Oh, yeah. um, great job, federal government, on that. I know that the program helped a lot of people, but it also helped a lot of people buy Pokemon cards. Apparently, was there any? It did stimulate the economy because somebody got the fifty-eight grand yeah, for that card. Yes. You know, somebody with an eBay account. Does God. did they say what they're going to do with it? So I mean, is this something where it becomes seized and then auctioned off? And I hope so. I hope that it becomes seized and then um, someone within the federal government like keeps it. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I I know that like um, the the head of the Small Business Administration said that he wants the government to try to get back all of the fraudulent money that was awarded. Which was a lot. It was like four point five billion dollars yeah. of that program of twenty billion dollars. So um yeah, maybe this Pokemon card gets seized, maybe it becomes a possession of the United States. Yeah. I liked I liked the idea we were tossing around of how, you know, if has he been convicted or is he just accused? Are these ale- are these allegations? I think indicted. I think okay. not not convicted. So if he did actually do the crime, right. I believe they make him stand out in front of that courthouse and slowly tear the card apart while crying, but still pay restitution. Whoa. Yeah. I think it's the only thing that makes sense. Don't you think we get that money back, though? No, I think this is actually better. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know what? They televise it, sell ads against it, windfall for everybody. <laughs> um, Jeff, if you had $58,000 legitimately that you could just spend on anything, what would it go towards? Not a Pokemon card. Um, 
Well, we were joking about home repairs. There's definitely some stuff around the house. Jeff's paint my house blue. <laughs> yeah, right. Get some su- uh, super can finally expensive. Afford that well, maybe paint. I can, maybe I can sell that paint I have to yeah. just finance that. I got you. That that's, just sounds, maybe that's our next story. That's too many steps. <laughs> Man sells can of blue paint for record number, record <laughs> amount. All right. My in case you missed it this week. Uh, we brought back an old show that uh, we haven't done in about 18 months as a result of uh, pandemic uh, limiting our resources. And uh, on Engineering by Design, I do three different stories in the design engineering realm. And sometimes I do them because I find them ridiculous or funny. And one of the stories this week uh, was a weight loss device that bolts onto your teeth to stop you from eating. So researchers in New Zealand and the UK developed a new weight loss device it's called the Dental Slim Diet Control, and it's an intraoral device installed in your teeth that only allows you to open your mouth two millimeters, so it keeps you on a liquid diet. The device consists of closed field magnets and orthodontic bands, and it's bolted, bolted into your mouth. It's In a recent trial, participants said that they could still breathe and speak with relative ease, which is good. Relative ease. But it made life, quote, Less satisfying. Oh, less satisfying. So sad. <laughs> oh, man. Makes life sad. In a two-week trial, the subjects leading less satisfying lives lost about 14 pounds, which worked out to about 5% of their body weight. And, I mean, I know that we're not really a panel of fad dieters, but, uh, Anna, would you ever bolt a device into your face for a fad diet? No. <laughs> I would not. Hot take, Anna. It, Hot well, take. It, it like makes me claustrophobic to think about it. I know there's like some sort of escape hatch or something like they give they you. They give tool you or... a tool. Yeah, yeah. Escape hatch. Like if I need to make sure I'm carrying an emergency key to my face, I don't think I need that device. <laughs> key to my face. Yeah. So like if you choke or something, then you can just like. Yeah, or like yeah. Uh, no, if uh, you have to, you know, if you have a health emergency, what are you supposed to do? Like. <laughs> like uh, trying to get your face. Oh no, they can talk. They can talk. So that, that was the tool. I so unlock my face. You just yell, un- unlock my face. Yeah. 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 Unlock my face. Unlock my face. I mean, uh, no. And they, if you see, I mean, it's just the first generation of the device uh, in the trials. But I mean, it is no petite device on one tooth stuck to another. It is like the last three or four on both sides. A lot of metal. So what is the difference between this and when, remember when they would say someone's jaws would be wired shut? Yeah. What's that? The difference, uh, I think the difference is that you can talk. Um, it's, that, it's that two millimeters of give. So that way you can talk and it's uh, easier to drink, apparently. Okay. I think when your jaws are wired shut, life is even less satisfying. Yeah. Ugh. No, this it looks horrible. I hate it. That's yeah. that's the nice one. So like uh if you scroll that's the updated version that they're like the next generation version of it. Um and yeah, it uh so this one just has it bolted on one tooth, but as you go through the story, it'll show it goes through like the back three molars. And I mean, I get it. I get it because they said um it's, you know, we have a global there it is. I mean, that's a lot of metal back there, man. Um we have a global obesity uh, problem. And they say, I mean, basically the researchers are like, hey, when, you know, things are really bad, you need to take extreme measures. And this might be the extreme measure that you need to take. I guess if somebody is like, maybe they're not qualified uh, for bariatric surgery or something and they do need to take an extreme measure, mm-hmm. maybe this is better than, you know, or something that they can do that's like, but man, yeah. you, you could like pop that thing open, I, that's what I would do. If no. I had it, I know that I would just be like, well, it's time for lunch. That's a... Uh, pop that thing open. Yeah. So, eat a sandwich. Yeah, producer Alex just asked if, uh, you know, what's to stop them from using the tool to pop it open and have pizza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think nothing. Nothing. I mean, well, I, I don't know. Nothing's... Because I know it has to be installed by your dentist. Maybe it's not that easy. I don't know. Oh, okay. Um, Nothing's stopping me, Alex. This just looks medieval. Like I, it really does. This it is, is extreme. I joke is the right term. Yeah, I joked about it being a chastity belt for your face, and it just is. It's yeah, it's yeah. creepy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, we also covered uh, ro- uh, robot rats that are used to control living rats, and that's problematic. And uh, how DARPA wants to weaponize fog. So check that one out. That was really cool too. Um, 
All right, Jeff, let's move on to your in case you missed it this week. Um, what do you got for us? So, David, we know how you feel about fruit-filled pies. Yes. And we know how you feel about fruit-filled donuts. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about Pop-Tarts? I love Pop-Tarts. You do? <clears throat> I do. Even with fruit in the middle of them. Yes, but okay, so to the story you're talking about, I never thought that was fruit. I thought that was more of a like, what's inside a gusher? You know? <laughs> I thought it what was What is more, inside a gusher? Yeah, I was Somebody thinking, tell us. I always thought like Pop-Tarts were like two, you know, somewhat flavorful wafers but with melted it, gummy bears in there. It still tastes like fruit though. I don't know. It kind of tastes like really what? gritty sugar paste. I never got a fruit vibe from a pop tart. I mean, it tastes like but there's it, not a lot of it, but it does taste like, like a fruit flavor. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's like it tasted more like a candy fruit flavor to me. But that's my point. It's still fruit. Yeah, but see, no, that's but your like, issue. T- tell everyone no. where. Okay, so the, no, but like uh, when you're talking about pastries like donuts, those actually have like fruits, a, a fruit based concoction injected into it, and so you're still like tasting actual fruit in there where this is just some sort of like strawberry flavored paste a thin layer to complement you have a you have a lot of layers david manty i know you have a lot of layers well anita harris is bringing a five million dollar lawsuit against kellogg's because she thinks their name frosted strawberry toaster pastries is false misleading and deceptive basically her claim is that there is not enough strawberry in these pop tarts for them to say that they're strawberry Pop-Tarts. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, I can't say that she's wrong yeah. because when they talk about it containing 2% or less of wheat starch, salt, dried strawberries, dried pears, and dried apples, that does not scream strawberry at me either. 2% yeah. or less. Mm-hmm. So she's got a point, but I guess to what you were saying, I never picked up a box of Pop-Tarts feeling like, you know what, I really <laughs> kind of want some strawberries, but yeah. I'm going to use Pop-Tarts instead. This is <laughs> going to fulfill the food pyramid uh, right. For, no, I mean, uh, I really don't care for litig- litigious and stupid people, um, and that's all I got from this story. Yeah, I mean, it, there is. She has a point in terms of labeling on food products. I mean, that has become more and more, as you'd said, litigious. I guess. Yeah. It seems like we should have better things to do. I think this is a bit extreme, but I mean, what if they just said it was a strawberry flavored? Pop-Tart. Yeah. Did that stop it's you from buying it? I mean... No, that, I don't think that's the point, though. I mean, may, I don't know what the point is for her. Maybe the point yeah. is money. Yeah. But, um, you know, what the the lawyer interviewed that was in this article says, like, this is really kind of a flip of a coin because there have been some really popular, like, food labeling lawsuits lately that have yeah. gone after this kind of specific issue, which is, what can you say on packaging and still be telling the truth. And mm-hmm. I think that that's actually a fair argument to be considering like, well, if this isn't strawberries in this product, then how can you say that it is the yeah. strawberry food if it's not, you know? So, yeah. and I guess, I guess my takeaway from this for manufacturers is just go that extra step mm-hmm. and make to flavored. avoid stuff like this because people are being overly analytical, overly scrutinizing everything. Just avoid one less headache, I guess. David's so how, buying Pop-Tarts right now. So how can you computer. call a chicken patty a chicken patty and not have chicken in there? That's misleading. Well, I saw that there's all there's a lawsuit, I think, uh, was filed against um, Morningstar Farms oh, for God. its veggie dogs because yeah. they hardly contain any vegetables, <laughs> even though they're just, you know. Yeah. So, but like, and there was another one that they mentioned about like Honey Bunches of Oats does not have very much honey in it. Yeah. It has that neither was- honey nor oats. So I guess that, but I mean, again, like I, I feel like there's got to be, I think the lawsuit's stupid right yeah. but like i get Let's get that out of the way yeah i like i'm not yeah. for this but um i do think like making sure that the packaging on a product is transparent and truthful is mm-hmm. important i think yeah no definitely when they when uh companies you wor- use words like natural uh you know mm-hmm. they use words to make the product seem healthier that is if you look at the cover of pop tarts i'm seeing nothing other than maybe taking the fruit, like the actual pictures of strawberries it, up. Though. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess you can make the connection that, well, there's two strawberries on the box. So, clearly, this is the person eating strawberry Pop Tarts and pizza and thinking they're getting enough fruit and vegetables in their diet. <laughs> Do you think there are even two strawberries in that whole box of 16, though? I'm going to go out on a limb and say not in an entire pellet. Mm hmm. 
Um, we had some questions earlier, particularly for myself, about the ingredients of a gusher. And a gusher, which actually I wonder how close it is to the ingredients of a Pop-Tart, is sugar, corn syrup, dried corn syrup, pear puree concentrates, there's your fruit, modified cornstarch, fructose, maldextrin, and palm oil. So I got a feeling that Pop-Tarts are the exact same thing. It just says strawberry puree concentrate in the middle. Why do we got to say dried corn syrup? Can't we just say corn syrup to... It just makes it sound way grosser. All the corn syrup. Yeah. yeah Frozen no, corn syrup. No. Uh, Dehydrated corn syrup. I mean, uh, these these lawsuits get so much play in the media because it makes people so angry. And uh, this one to me is just uh, a little waste of time. I don't know. I don't know. Not agree. I don't think they're fighting the good fight on that one. No. I apologize. It's a, class, it's are, a class action, though. So if anyone disagrees, you can get involved. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you disagree, please email me with your argument, arguments, because I need to know what it is. Just like, I've been wronged for years. Can't believe I have no, never mind. Anyway, let's move on to our final thoughts this week. Um, Anna, let's start with you. What is your final thought for our viewers, well, readers, I'm, listeners? I, I'm going to have to change it because I just want to say, Jeff, it was great being on the same side as you for that um, eVTOL and mm-hmm. just like going after David um, from both sides because usually yeah. we're not on the same. This is true. Felt yeah. good. Yeah. I actually, I prefer it when I'm the lone wolf. No, you don't. And you guys are both wrong. The lone wolf. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why you guys wouldn't want to just, you know, fly. Let it go, David. You were wrong. Just let it go. I'm not wrong. I mean, yeah. actually, this just... type of story, we can both be right because I can buy one. And you guys can watch me have fun in, fun in it. And no. Like, bad. Just like run through a field and that you'll feel free. I don't know. You don't need this thing. Are you equating the free power of flight to sauntering through a cornfield? I didn't say saunter. I said run. Okay. I'll try both. And I'm going to chase you. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, That'll just be the podcast next week. Just watching Anna chase David through a cornfield. You better run. <laughs> so fast um, <laughs> Jeff what's your final thought this week um so Halloween this weekend mm-hmm. should be interesting it's kind of we're in a weird place because we like lovely smart kids coming up to the mm-hmm. place to get the candy but like our kids are gone now mm-hmm. yeah so it's also this sort of cool almost vacation weekend for us because they're just gone doing stuff yeah. so kind of actually looking forward to Halloween for two really weird reasons so. <laughs> what's your go-to Halloween candy that we hand out yeah, so, I mean, you hand it out, but you overbuy hoping that you have some left Oh, over. the peanut butter cups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without a doubt. Easily. Okay. Yep. I prefer the Werther. <laughs> I like to buy a Cut. smattering. Of, you buy the candy that gets your house egged. I do. But, no, I just put that at the bottom yeah. of we're going to go with uh, Pirate Booty this year. Like oh, that's that good. Yep. Yeah. It looks big, but it's still cheap. No. <laughs> and then when you run out, it's all... Brock's Neapolitan chews. That's right. That's right. The caramels, the square caramels. Oh, I like those. I do too. I love them. I wouldn't hand them out for Halloween though. No, it's like when you tell them they could take a handful and they're like, yeah, come on. The blue peppermints. No. Butterscotch. Just like that's delicious. Um, Anna, what's your preferred? Oh, the the peanut butter cup? Yeah, it's none of this garbage. (laughs) Gotcha. I'm bringing it all in for the office. All right. Um, My final thought is how we receive some crazy pitches, crazy emails on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And man, are the spammers getting creative. So I just want to go and say congratulations to the spammer that made my inbox this week by with the subject line, you did this to me with a crying emoji. No way. Yeah, thought that there was a little bit more cause for concern there. And uh, so that one popped up and I'm just like, going to have to have more conversations with the team. But the rest of the email said, I was surfing the waves on the internet and came across your website. More so, it distracted me with its compelling content Mm. so well that my cat, Uzi, and I haven't gotten any work done all day. I just got to say, if you are a spammer in any way... And uh, I paid you a compliment. 
Oh no, no, it was it was all spam. Like, and so after these two lines, it was just like, I'd like to insert some embedded links, and if you could post these articles for me, it was all spam. But it was like a very creative thing. Uh, and her cat named Uzi apparently is uh, something because she wanted to put um, advocacy advocacy articles onto the website. It was just sorry. I should have said after those two lines, it wasn't a compliment. It was spam trying to solicit space on our website for free. I see. And uh, yeah, no, keep the compliments coming after uh, that. One. Yeah, I don't think you're going to be getting any more no. after that. Are you? You're here to defend spammers. If you want to email the podcast, it's Anna at IEN or Jeff at IEN. That those are the only people to email. Yeah. I don't think you so. Email me. I'll have a response. <laughs> but oh, right. they want the response. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I make sure it's it's different and creative for everybody. Um. All right. Before we get out of here, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. And to email the podcast, you can reach me at david <laughs> at in.com. You can also reach Jeff and Anna, jeff at in.com and Anna at in.com. But you can particularly reach me. <laughs> With email the podcast in the subject line, not you did this to me with a crying emoji. All right. Also, make sure to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. Make sure you get the uh, podcast in your inbox first. All right. For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.